0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We are launching today a new series, five-week series on faith, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Um, I would like to, on the front end of this series, state an objective fact that is not debatable. I am objectively the worst golfer that has ever existed. Uh, You can compete with me, and I would like to prove to you that I am the worst golfer that ever existed. I golf once a, once a year, and it's for a fundraiser for my kid's school. And uh, every year I go, and I don't want to be there. But this year, um, it was 12 holes until I could get the ball to get off the ground. Okay, 12 holes. Do you realize that, right? 12 holes, multiple times I would sit there. So I'd be like, I don't know, 100 feet away because I ended up throwing the ball. So I'd be about 100 feet away. And apparently there's this thing, what are they called, the angled clubs? Wedge, whatever. I use a putter. That's how good I am, right? 100 feet out, it's the putter. More than 100 feet, it's the number one driver. There's only two options in my arsenal, okay? So uh, my theory is this. Uh, I get up and I have a good stance. It's pretty awesome, and uh, I've been trained by professionals. And so I wind up, and I swing, and the ball inevitably goes to about 9, 10 o'clock, right, that direction. So in my brain, here's the next logical step. Turn my body this way. And if I want to hit it that way, aim over there. Well, here's the problem. It always goes that direction. And if I'm lucky, it'll go backwards. So um, we get to the 12th hole, um, 11th hole at this event. And it's a fundraiser, so every hole is sponsored by um, somebody who gives money. And then you can win a prize if you get a hole-in-one. So every time the hole-in-one comes up, I'm thinking, I'm going to win a trip to Aruba or $5,000 or something. And uh, so we get up, and this woman, in complete and total sincerity, Um, says, I believe you can do this. And I said to her, quote, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. You have never seen me golf. And she looks at me, and this is about a three-minute conversation, which, by the way, on the golf course while everybody's waiting, how long is that in real life? Like three days, right? So the conversation is going back and forth, and and she says, no, I have faith in you and in this club. I believe you're going to do this. All the guys on my team, are for some, they are laughing hysterically. They think this woman is just a moron. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, look, lady, um, that's adorable. You don't know how bad I am. And she said, I believe in you. You don't have enough faith. And she proceeded to lecture me on my lack of faith. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, okay. I said, okay, look, I'll tell you what. Um, I, I will give you five bucks if I can get this ball off the ground, and I don't mean, like, like, it'll hop. I mean, if I can just get it to go in a direction that isn't, like, parallel to the ground, okay? So, like, and she's like, no, I'm not going to take that bet. I believe in you. You're going to hit this ball all the way over this little lake, whatever, all the way over the lake. And I said, that's, that's, that's fine and dandy. I get up. The ball goes a total of 12 feet. I mean, I sit there, and I wind. I'm, I'm putting my best into it. And I look at her and I said, I'm sorry, but the object of your faith isn't reliable and it's a terrible golfer. And point made, I I was blown away. And this is how this woman perceives the whole idea. You just got to believe it to be real. And at some point, I'm like, this is complete nonsense. And John Orberg, who's a pastor, he said this, the quality of your faith, it doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith That saves you. I can have all of the confidence, all of the belief, all of the trust, all of the faith in my ability to hit that ball past 12 feet without leaving the ground. It won't happen because the object of my faith on that golf course is pathetic and terrible and objectively the worst golfer on the history of the planet. Some of you, you're here and you have had genuine legitimate faith struggles. You have struggled to believe fear and doubt regularly cripple you. This is a part of your normal experience, and I'll be honest in this series, my desire for you is to encourage you. It is to build you up. It is to point you to the most reliable God ever because he's the only one who is faithful and true and loves you and wants to build you up. You have lived in a spirit of self-condemnation because you believe you've never been good enough, and what I want to teach you is how God views faith, what is faith, And I really want this series to encourage you. Some of you, you are like rocks. You're like Peters. You um, have an unbelievable amount of faith. Yes, you have moments of wavering and struggles. um, But what I really want to do for you is I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you to go deeper, to take this thing called faith, to take bigger risks, and to take those who are weaker in faith along with you and show them how to grow faith. I want to build you up. I want to encourage you and I want to equip you to take people with you. Um, some of you, I think, are like Thomas's. Can you relate to this? John 20, 25, Thomas um, has heard from all of the disciples that Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. And here's what he says. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Some of, some of you are in a Thomas position. You don't believe, and you have taken a stance in your life that says this, until I touch him, until I see him, until he proves himself to me, I will not believe. My, my encouragement for you um, is through this series is very simply, I want to help you better understand what true belief or true faith is. So number one in your notes um, says, all faiths are not the same. In Hebrews 11, this is called the Hall of Faith. It's the cheesiest like title ever. I actually didn't even want to say it because it's just so cheesy, but it's called the Hall of Faith. And so what Hebrews 11 does is that it goes through the history of the Bible, and it tells you the stories or brings up situations of people who lived with great faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 defines faith for us and then gives us a number of examples. And the goal of Hebrews 11 is to take this disenfranchised, oppressed community and to build them up and to encourage them, but to tell them, don't Shrink back. Don't give up. Whatever you do, do not give up. And I want you to read with me Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Just go back a little bit here, and here's what Hebrews 10 says. Uh, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Does Does this feel weighty? Does this feel like whatever this faith thing is, I need to get it? Because if I, if I lose it, my relationship with God is at stake. Do you see this? But we, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so this is the context. The context is a group of people who are oppressed, who are tempted to give up, who are tempted to buckle under the weight of persecution. And so the author of Hebrews writes to them and says, look, you cannot be the ones who shrink back. You must be the ones who stand up. You must be the ones who believe. But here's the question. What does this mean? We got to get to the core. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So the Hebrew word for, or the Hebrew, the Greek word for, for faith is pistis. This is one of the few times you can say this word in church. Pistis. It's one of my favorite words. I'm going to say it multiple times throughout this sermon just to capture your attention and make sure you don't fall asleep on us. It is one of the most simple and yet confusing and ethereal concepts in Scripture. I really believe that the older you get, the more confusing this term gets. But if you are a child, if you are a four-year-old or a five-year-old, this term has, has, has kept its purity. So three simple ways this is translated in English. Faith trust, or belief. But do you see all these words are very different in the English language? One word, right, gets translated as faith. It gets translated as trust. It gets translated as believe, And these are very different words. And so we need to make sure we're very clear what we mean and what we don't mean. So a few things that faith is not. You ready for this? Number one, faith is not a minimal requirement to go to heaven. Faith, trust, belief, pistis, true faith, is not just simply a minimal requirement to get to heaven. Uh, Many people say, what is the least I can do? Now, you may not say this with your words, but your heart and your mind and your actions communicate this. What is the least I can do on this side of heaven to make sure that when I die, I don't go to hell? And then the answer would be, Oh, well, the least I can do is faith, a little bit of faith. As long as I just at one point in my life trust in Jesus, it's a get out of hell free card, so I'm just gonna trust in Jesus now and then I'm gonna walk away and do whatever I want for the rest of my life. This is not the nature or the character of true faith. Uh, Imagine, wives, um, you're about to get married to somebody and the husband says, what is the least I can do? What is the least I can do to make sure you don't divorce me and to make sure this marriage is like real. Like imagine the pastor, I'm sitting there, I'm trying to do their vows. And he's like, what's the least I can promise to make sure that this marriage thing happens, right? You, I, whoever's with the, the wife, whatever, you look at this dude and you would say, You don't understand vows or marriage, and this whole thing, you don't even get the nature of it. And that's how many Christians perceive faith. It's just a minimal requirement, the least you could do to make sure you don't go to hell. And as long as at one time, way back in the day, you said a little prayer, and you blew God off the rest of your life, you are okay, because you, at one point in your life, had a little tiny bit of faith, of which... You don't even understand what the true nature of it is. So, faith is not just this simple, minimal requirement for you to do the least you can. If that is your approach, you need to hear me. You don't have true faith. You might have a version of faith, you might have something that masquerades as true faith, but that's not true faith. Number two, true faith is not a pithy phrase, you just have to believe. You just have to believe I believe in you I believe I I can fly really have you ever heard that song right every time I would hear it I would say no amount of belief is going to make this thing fly okay put me in an airplane I believe planes can fly Um, you look at kids and you're like all you got to do is believe if you believe all your dreams can come true well let me tell you that that's not accurate (laughs) what is accurate is if you work very very hard Okay, you can do a lot more than you could do than if you just sat there and believed and wished something to be true, okay? Um, For many people in our culture, faith is this really meaningful thing. Um, Hollywood is considered to be faithful and they're men of faith and women of faith. They'll put on things you just gotta believe. You just gotta believe. If you believe it, anything is possible. Um, It's not a pithy phrase. It's actually annoying. Uh, It is not a weapon for abuse. Um, You may have heard this, but um, there are churches that, where the pastors and the leaders teach, if you're sick, The only thing you have to do to get better is believe, and if you don't get healed from cancer or whatever, it's because your faith wasn't strong enough. This is nothing short of spiritual abuse. Does this pastor or Bible teacher, quote-unquote Bible teacher, understand the nature of true biblical faith? Everybody, the answer is no. Faith is not a blind leap into something uncertain. Faith is not something where you just say, oh, I don't think it's gonna work out. We're just gonna jump and see what happens. Faith is not simply a blind leap and you don't know what's coming next. Faith is bigger than that. It is more beautiful than that. True faith is my son's, my four-year-old son's certain leap from the sixth step off our stairs into my arms without warning me that I am going to catch him. That is faith. Is it logical? Probably not. Is his future secure and certain? Yes, because I've never dropped the kid yet. <laughs> okay? That is faith. Um, blind faith just jumps, even if nobody's there, and hopes some magical force will just catch you. True biblical faith jumps, knowing Because of who's there and what's going on that you're going to be caught whether you tell him or not. It's total confidence that I will receive him. It's total confidence I'm going to catch him. There's no reserve. He doesn't even need to ask because he's got pistis. He doesn't have a pithy phrase. He doesn't have this blind, illogical thing. He does not have um, this minimal requirement. He has pistis. It's fundamentally different. We cannot teach on faith until we dismantle all of these ridiculous notions of what faith is. Faith is my son, this is the picture, jumping off the stairs into my arms without one ounce of hesitation. That is pure, strong faith. It is fundamentally deeper than a knowledge that I will catch him. It is actual proven trust that I will catch him. Which brings me to, I think, a really important here, which is true faith at its core. It's relational. Uh, I've heard countless sermons on faith and it is intellectualized. It becomes propositions. It becomes facts. It becomes very, very concrete. And I want you to understand this. Beyond the propositions, faith is fundamentally about a relationship and the posture of that relationship. Faith is a lot of things, but if you miss that fundamentally faith is about you and God and how you two interact with each other, you will miss it. If you if you just want me to give you a simple intellectual definition of faith, Uh, this whole series will be useless for you. What I want to do in this series is I want to encourage you to have a different kind of interaction and relationship with God, one that is based on pure trust, not just intellectual ideas. Um, In scripture, faith both initiates your relationship with God and it nourishes it. And the more faith, the more trust, the more pistis between you and God, the better your relationship gets. Faith, Pistis, it's like nutrition to a body. It, not, it keeps it alive. It keeps it growing. And without this, it starts to struggle. The reason God is happier when you have pistis, when you have faith, when you have trust in him, I want you to get this, is fundamentally because God is a dad. And when God communicates, the primary way we relate to him, it is father to son, Father to daughter. It is children to dad. He has adopted us. We are his kids. And I I think you just need to get this. When my son says, I trust you, dad, what does that make me feel? Happy. And when my son says, I don't trust you, what does that make me feel? Sad. Why? Why? Because God created moms and dads in his image to give us a picture of his nature and character and of how we relate to him. This is why we say pistis, faith, it's fundamentally relational. If you take it outside of the father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter relationship, you start to miss the entire point of what God wants to grow. He wants to grow a kind of interaction between kids and dads, between us and him that is based on faith, that is based on trust. When my daughter's they come and they cry in my arms and they tell me their woe and they see me as safe. What does my heart feel? Satisfaction. One level, my heart empathizes and breaks for them. But as a dad, I'm like, yes, bring it in, right? Because this kind of pistis, this kind of trust is fundamentally relational. At the end of a day, if you've just had a terrible moment and you go to God and you cry out to him and you tell him your woes, do you know what that makes God feel? happy because you are like a son or a daughter who goes to their dad and you lean on him these are these moments of faith when you throughout your day you're just talking to him because you believe he's there and you believe he hears you when your son or daughter you sit with them on their bed at night that's when they start talking and chit-chatting and and right like, ah, and what do you feel when they start opening their heart to you and they're trusting you they're giving you their pistis in that moment what happens in your soul satisfaction. You want to stay there. I know your bedtime's eight o'clock, but I'll stay up till 1030 if you want to keep talking, right? Because there's something inside of our heart that says, I want my relationship with you to be based on pistis. And when you give it to me, it brings me deep satisfaction, which is why there's few greater pains a mom or dad can have than the estrangement of their son or daughter. The reason that is is because that's just a glimpse of what God feels when, when we lose pistis with him, when we lose estrangement, a lack of confidence, a lack of trust in who he is. So your pistis, it's ultimately about you and God. It's about your relationship. It's about the way you relate. So let's talk about what faith is. Faith is a few things. Number one, true faith is a gift, and it is a gift only saved people have. Ephesians 2, eight and multiple other places in scripture communicate about faith, that it is something that only Christians have. Uh, other religions have versions of faith. They have things that masquerade as faith. But the kind of true faith, this kind of true trust between God and his children uh, is a gift, and this gift fundamentally comes from God. If you have even the tiniest bit of this true faith you are a son or daughter of God. Your eternal destiny is secure, despite, despite how small it is or how many ridiculous, dumb things that we do. Ephesians 2.8 says, faith is the gift of God. Faith for me is like an adoption paper. It is the evidence of a legal relationship. This adoption paper, the moment it's signed. It initiates, it inaugurates a relationship. The moment, the moment God gives faith, this is the signing of your adoption papers. And the moment He gives it to you, no matter how big or how small the faith is that He gives it to you, if you have a mustard seed or a mountain, the moment. He gives you the gift of faith. Your adoption is secure. Your relationship with him is firm. It is done. It is finalized. And this faith gives ongoing credibility to your relationship. You you could be adopted. And if somebody could say, are they really your dad? And you show them the adoption papers and you say, you better believe they're my dad. And this proves it. Faith is like adoption papers. It is this gift from God. And God doesn't give it to everybody. You'll quickly realize this in life. Everybody does not have faith. Okay? But the ones who do have true faith, they are sons and daughters of God. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Jesus you are all sons of God through what? Faith. Number two, true faith is a spectrum. Romans 12.3 says this, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Have you ever looked at somebody and you're like, Why do they never doubt why do they never doubt? Why are they always so confident? Why have they never had a crisis of faith? Anybody? Right? And then there's me. Right? My whole life, I'm like, is it, is it really real? Is it really true? Like, I remember as a kid, like, true story. I would sit in my bedroom, and we had um, a ceiling. It was like these, these uh, looked like icicles that came down. It was like drywall was pulled down and then dried. You know what I'm talking about? And so I would sit there, and I would look at them, and my ceiling had glitter on it. It was built in the 70s. Just go with it, okay? So my ceiling had glitter on it, and so I would, I would look up at the ceiling, and I would say, God, I know you're real, but if you're really real, could you let a gold coin just come out of the sky and land, like, on the bed, right? That, I, I, I prayed that prayer so many times. If you don't know, I was obsessed with ducktails.) tails. Mm-hmm. All right. Just going to throw it out there again. Come on, people. All right. I was obsessed with DuckTales, and so I go watch DuckTales, and I go, God, if you're real, please, right? And some people, it's like they just don't doubt. They never had a struggle with this because God has allotted to each a measure. A measure is a unit of weight. It either measures length or volume. And so um, what you have here is that there are some people, let's say faith is a scale from 1 to 10. They might have a 10, and for some people, they might have a 1, Right? But it doesn't matter how big the letters are on the adoption paper. If you have it, what is official and real and true? Your adoption, right? And so for some people, um, they get a huge amount of faith. And God determines, predetermines um, how much faith he is going to give somebody. Now, don't get me wrong. This faith can grow and it can shrink, okay? But everybody seems to start with a different amount of faith. There are some people, and I really believe that God gives some people ones or twos so they study and they think and they fight and they wrestle because what God wants to do with them is going to be birth out of their intellectual struggles. And for some people, God gives them a 10 because God is going to put them in environments where uh, maybe the mission of the church or some people's vision needs to become reality. And 10s have this way to enter into circumstances and say, don't worry about it, God's going to work this out. Just keep, keep going. God's got it. God's got it. Don't worry about it. It's going to work out. And sometimes ones and twos and threes live off the faiths of eights and nines and tens. And it's inspiring and it's motivating. And this is what, honestly, the book of uh, Hebrews in chapter 11 is trying to do. is trying to show you these people who had faith of eights and nines and tens. And he's trying to encourage the people who are tempted to shrink back with ones and twos and threes. Now, it may not feel fair, but some people get more and some people get less. Number three, true faith is Action. True faith is action. It's a noun that communicates a necessary effect. Remember James chapter 2 says faith without works is what? Dead. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's just not useful. It means that it's like non-existent. It's not true faith. So faith, to me, it's like the word murder, (laughs) right? It implies there's a necessary uh, action or laughter, right? The word itself communicates action. Faith is a word that communicates by its very nature, not just an idea, but behavior. So if my son is sitting on the sixth step and he wants to jump, right, that is the action of pistis. Pistis always works itself out to various degrees, sometimes one, sometimes ten, okay? But pistis has a necessary effect. If my son never jumped, if my son never actually behaved in a way that said he had pistis toward me, then he doesn't have pistis because pistis necessarily acts. It necessarily does something. Number four, true faith is confidence. Now we get to Hebrews chapter 11, and I want to just vet this one out for a little bit. Um, Go back to chapter 11, verse 1. I want to show you three benefits of someone who experiences true faith. Number one, true faith brings confidence, confidence to my present. It says, now faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Okay, uh, most people, um, what do they do with the future? They worry, right? They worry. They look to the future, they see uncertainty, and the emotion that wells up is what? Fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, hesitation. I want to ask you this question. Do little four-year-olds worry about the future? Rarely. Unless they have gone through deep pain, a deep and profound letdown, four-year-olds who grew up in semi-functional homes don't worry about the future. Why? Because I've never let my kid down yet. I mean, don't get me wrong, i failed, but I haven't come through, I've never failed to come through on my promises. Every year at Christmas, do you know what my son expects? There will be presents, and his name will be on a bunch of them. Why? Because I'm a good dad who likes to give him good gifts, and I have never let him down. I have never, ever put him in a position on his birthday or at Christmas where I've said, you don't get anything. You weren't a good boy, ever. My son's past experience with me gives him no anxiety whatsoever about the rewards he's going to get in the future. And what does that do with his present? Peace. There is confidence. There is surety. There is a stable-footedness to him. He does not have to wake up and wonder, will my bills get paid? Why? Because dad has never let him down, and dad's always taking care of him. And this is what a four-year-old does. Now, my four-year-old is not privy to all the knowledge of reality, right? Because the world is a much scarier place than my four-year-old realizes. But it doesn't matter how scary that world is because one of the things this four-year-old has is a dad who protects him and provides for him and loves him and wants to bless him. Why? Because that's what dads do to kids, to their sons. And God is a dad, and God looks at his his kids, and he says, I've got this. Now, whether you've got a 1 or a 10, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a level of confidence right now because of who is in control of the future. This is what faith does. This is one of the benefits. I want to be clear with you, okay? The person with a a 1 out of 10 faith, you still have it? your confidence is probably going to be less than the person with the 10. The people who have 10 out of 10, I'll be honest, you guys annoy me, I love you, and I wanna be around you, and I want you to encourage me, right? I don't get it, okay? That's not me, right? And I love that you're there. It pumps me up for you, okay? <laughs> I'm sitting here on the lower end of the spectrum, and, and uh, I'm like, come on, come on. And so I have a sure-footedness. I have a confidence, but I want you to get this. Even though I feel like I started low on the faith spectrum, God has asked me to grow this muscle and to practice and to go deeper and to risk more and to trust more, and to j- jump off the first step with hesitance, and I get on the second step of the stairs with hesitance, and I'm warning him, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump, you got me, you got me, you know you know what I'm saying, that kind of faith, right? I still make the decision to jump from the first step, but doggone it. I'm going to make sure everything is safe in the process, right? It's still pissed us, but it's not my son's pistis, right? It's a one, my son's got a 10, right? And there's a big difference here, but this is what true pistis does, is it gives you this assurance and this confidence to one degree or another. And if you're a one out of 10 and you're like, I need more confidence, I'm gonna tell you the only way to grow faith, the only way, it's to risk. That's it, that is it. If you're gonna grow faith, you have to risk, period. You don't risk, you don't grow your faith. If you don't do hard things, you don't grow your faith. Period. If you want your life to be safe, clean, nice, and easy, you will never deepen your faith. Period. You will be static. This will be your spiritual status quo. And what God wants from you is deeper, deeper levels of trust because it brings Him great joy and it's how you're created to be. Now, when you get older, when you're four, it's easy. When you get older, we tend to get a little jaded by faith. But benefit number two true faith brings clarity about our past. Verse three says this by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I want you to, want you to just catch this. Faith results in a true understanding of reality. When you are given true faith, it's like receiving glasses that work. If, you, if your eyes are 20-20, well, 20, 20, whatever. I'm jealous. Fine. You know, those of you who have hair, fine. Whatever, right? But if you, if your eyes work, you're not going to get this. But for the most of you, okay, here's what it's like. You don't have, your glasses aren't working. You're going through life. Everything's a little bit fuzzy. And then you're in the, the, what do you call it? The guy who looks at your eyes, optometrist. Thank you. And they're putting the lenses through, Does that work? No. Does that work? No. Does that work? No. And finally they get the right prescription. And it's like an aha moment. You walk outside with your new prescription, and the whole world has clarity, and you're like, oh, interesting. I didn't see that before. I didn't know that color was there. I didn't know I could see into their home. That's creepy. All right. I'm going to be shutting the shades in my house from now on. I see what my wife, who does have 20-20 vision, was talking about. It's like getting glasses, and it shows you how to see the world for what the world really is. When God gives you this gift, it's accompanied with the Word of God, which is this lens, this filter that we... We put over all of reality, and it shows us what is real and what is true, and where we came from and where we're going. And here's what's interesting I want you to notice where he hearkens the person of true faith back to to the very creation account where God, with his very words, spoke, and matter existed from Adam to animals to plants uh, to all stars to the sun. God speaks, and these things exist. And he says, The universe was created by the word of God, true faith, it actually gives you understanding of how we got here. Atheism just brings you more questions. Secular humanism just brings you more confusion. It doesn't actually answer the fundamental questions that the human heart is constantly posing. And so here's what, what the Christian says. The Christian says, now I'm gonna just drive some of you nuts, so just go with me for a moment, okay? The Christian says, God spoke, matter existed, And he did it in a very finite period of time. And the and the um, atheist, the secular humanist, the skeptic says, no, but science says, and let me just give you the one retort that if God is real, and if he is true, that shuts down the entire discussion once and for all. Okay? Could God make the world with the appearance of age? And he said he did? Like, it was very clear when he made Adam, right, he communicated immediately. He didn't create Adam as a little, like, two-celled, like, fetus inside of its mother's womb and then, like, birthed him in some, like, womb and then let him grow and then, you know, breastfed him and then taught him. Like, this is not how Adam was created. Adam was created as if he had been born and alive for a very long time. And that is what happened with the earth, and that is what happens with everything. And then the scientists will say, well, that's really misleading of God to do that. Or it's not. Or he's showing you his absolute and total genius, period. Here's the deal. The whole discussion goes out the window just like this. If God could, then God could. And if God did, then he did. And if you believe that God made Adam, and he made Adam with the appearance of age, then the whole discussion is is done. It's just done. And some of you would say, well, that's not what science tells us. I'm I'm not even saying half of what science is saying is wrong. I'm just saying that what science does not have is the lens to see the facts accurately. The lens shows us that, yes, God created the worlds with somewhat of the appearance of age. He created Adam and other things like that. Fine. But here's what the lens of Scripture says, that that didn't happen over a period of billions of years. It happened in, with the Word of God in a moment. And that's what happens. That's where we came from. And science will never be able to answer those fundamental human questions. And so, again, I've heard people say, that's really misleading for God. That makes me not want to trust him, unless he already told you that's exactly what he did. He spoke, and the the world existed. He spoke, and it's interesting. Hebrews 11 starts at creation and says, faith fundamentally goes back to the very beginning, to the first act of God, and we say, I have confidence that what you said you did, you did. And because I have confidence in what you said you did, I have confidence in what you say you will do. And faith goes all the way back to the beginning, and it holds God accountable to his words and the way he says them, and then says this, because you're faithful then, you're going to be faithful in the future. Everything God did, everything God does, and everything God will do, will be 100% logical with the right information. I totally believe that. God is not anti-logic. God does not ask you to believe in unicorns and fairies. That's not how this works, right? God literally, everything that is real and true is true because God made it to function that way. God is the king of logic. Here's what faith does. Faith gives us the worldview, the lens, to see reality accurately. Um, Faith gives us the lens to understand the spiritual realm and dynamics of this world that the physical realm just cannot quantify or understand. It helps us understand the lens through which we see the past, the present, and the future, the whys and the wheres and the hows. And faith gives you this. This is why faith is such an amazing gift because as everybody just gropes for answers, God intervenes and says, here's where you came from, here's how it happened, here's where you're going, here's the purpose of life, and this is why it's important. Oh yeah, here's my name, here's my nature, here's my character, here's your problem, and here's the solution. You ready? He just bypasses all of the groping of human history and gives us, in a moment with this gift of faith, understanding, which produces confidence, which produces assurance. Isn't this amazing? You can see why those of you who have faith You have something so profound and so special. Even if you just get a one, stop looking at the tens and complaining and look at the people who have nothing and say, I have been given the filter, the lens, the grid, the worldview to process all of reality and all of the fundamental human questions that science can't answer. God has already answered for me, so now I can go live my life for his glory. That's amazing. I love the fact that God gives us faith. True faith brings anticipation about my future. Not just a generic future, my future. Judaism and Christianity, fundamentally different than every other world religion on a lot of levels, but here's one that I really love. It's the only religion at this time when this is written where the gods want to bless the people, where God says, I want to bless you. And even when I take from you, it is ultimately for your blessing. Verse 6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This This is one of the things I look at with my son. My son is confident I want to bless him. He is confident of it. If he was confident that I wanted to punish him, which is how the gods of most religions function, The God of Christianity is fundamentally different because this God does not look to punish first, but to bless. And even when there is an inevitable punishment, he gives us ways out. He's amazing. He is looking to bless. And I love this. Those uh, who have faith, they must believe that he will reward those who seek him. I wanna read this for you, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Paul says, this light momentary affliction, which by the way for him is getting beat mocked, almost dying multiple times, ultimately getting killed. This light momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Only if you have true faith can you look at the pain in your life and the suffering of your life and say, This is light, momentary affliction when compared to what I know God is going to reward me with in the future. Faith allows you to see the present difficulties and allows you to see them in such a way that they don't crush you because you know with confidence what's coming. And it's not a blind confidence. It is a certain confidence because this worldview, this lens, makes sense of all of reality. Number two in your notes, if you could ask God for one thing, what would it be? Solomon, he asked for wisdom. I was torn on this one because um, Solomon got riches and all this other stuff, and I thought to myself, that would be fun. But we get to the New Testament, and it's interesting because Paul says that the most important thing is love, right? But did you know that the one thing that Jesus applauds, the one thing that makes him stop dead in his tracks is not love, it is not unity, right? It is always and almost only faith. When Jesus sees pistis in someone, somebody who just looks at him and says, you're good, you're a rewarder, and I trust you. When he sees adults who are like my son from the sixth step just jump and run into his arms and just expect him to catch them, those ones, God looks at those people and says, everybody stop. Look at this. Look at this. Number two in your notes, the faith that makes God happy. I I just want to give you a snapshot. There's the word commendation. It comes up, oh, a lot of times in this small little passage. Commendation is what God gives to those who have faith. And commendation means this. God applauses. It's like heaven stops, and when he sees you jump from that sixth step, and he sees that you are acting in pistis, he says, everybody just pause for a moment. Look what they did. And for those of you who have a one out of ten faith, and you exercise that one, he stops, and he applauds, and he says, Look, everybody, angels, people, I just want you to just stop for a moment and look, look at their trust. And the 10 out of the 10, right, stops, looks, commends them. We need to see this word, one, two, three, four, comes up at least four times. And the word please God is another synonym for commendation here. Jesus loves it. Verse 2 says this. For by it, and I want to actually help you understand in verse 2, go to the next slide, um, in verse 2 where it says by it. I want you to change these words in your brain to because of it, okay? Because of their faith, because of the pistis that they have, the people of old receive their commendation. And he gives two examples. And the first one is Abel. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Um, They both brought a sacrifice to God. And whose uh, sacrifice did God accept? Abel, good job, there we go. Did somebody say Cain? No, it's Abel, right? Go, uh, and, and, and so you, you read the story, and you're trying to figure out what is it that God liked about one and not the other, um, and, and here's, here's what you get. Uh, it becomes pretty clear as you read through the text that uh, Abel gave his first, and he gave his best. That's what he gave. He gave his first, and the text goes out of its way to make sure you know that he gave his first to God. Despite the cost, despite the sacrifice, right, He gave God his best. Abel, it appears, gave God his second best or his leftovers. That Abel took care of himself, and then he gave God what was left over, and then Cain Cain did, and then Abel gave God what was first. He gave him the first uh, of his sacrifice. And and so you get to this first moment in time, right, and this first beautiful act of faith, if you will, and God looks and says, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to commend this. Because every time somebody sacrifices and gives their first and their best, I want to just stop for a moment and say, this makes God really, really happy. I don't care if it's your money, if it's your time, if it's your gifts, if it's your home, if it's your food, whatever it is. When you give away back to God the most important things, God just is like, I love that you trust me so much that you would give me your first and your best says this, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What is his faith saying as it reverberates through generations in the word of God? It's saying God is worthy of your first and your best, and you'll never regret giving it to him, ever. And then we get to the story of Enoch. I mean, who is Enoch? All we know is that this man had faith, and he was distinct and unique in an entire corrupt generation and world. And there's something about this man that when God saw Enoch's faith, he applauds, and he says, there's something so unique about you, I'm not even going to wait till you die, I'm just taking you to heaven. And then the text says, that basically, Enoch was not. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. What did Enoch have that pleased God? Everybody, the answer is faith. Now say pistis. Pistis. Some of you are like, I'm not saying that word in church. Not saying it. Verse 6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. If you don't have this fundamental thing, you and God are not okay. That's what he's saying. If you don't have this, you're not okay. Okay? If you do have it, even a one out of ten, your relationship with God has inaugurated, you're adopted as a son, as a daughter of God, and you have the capacity to please him. And then it closes and says, whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I want to close with uh, one question. How do I know? How do I know if I have true faith? How do I know? Uh, I want to give you two aspects of this answer. Number one is the object of your faith. If your faith is in anything other than the one true God, it is not true faith. If your faith uh, is not in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is a masquerade of faith. You can use the word faith in the English vernacular sense of the word, But the word in Scripture, pistis, true faith, biblical faith, the kind of faith in Hebrews 11, always acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord. He is the Son of God the Father. And when he has resurrected and ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit has been sent to fill those who would trust or have faith in him. Fundamentally, if you reject Jesus, you do not have true faith. Now, what I'm not saying is that your confidence in Jesus, your trust in Jesus needs to be a 10 out of 10. If you have a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. But here's the deal. Even that 1 will get on the first step and it might try to make everything safe. Dad, Dad, you got me. Dad, you got me. Dad, you got me. Dad, we good? Right? I'm about to jump. Count to three. No, 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 no. Start over, right? Just the fact that you jump shows that you might have a 1 out of 10. Now, if, you, if you're at the end of the day, the mustard seed faith, um, I just wanna encourage you, even if you have a mustard seed, this is true faith because your salvation is not contingent on the quality of your faith but on the character of the object of your faith. And so for, I'll be honest, when I see people take small steps of faith and trust in God, it pumps me up. I don't need you to be a 10. I just wanna see you take a next step When I watch people learn to tithe for the first time and they start out at like 3% and they've never done anything, I'm like, I'm like, I'm really genuinely proud. That is a big, that is a big first step. And when I watch them start to serve for the first time or open up their Bible and start to discipline when I watch them take small steps of confession, which is a big risk for a lot of people, when I watch them kill their pride, I'm like, these are mustard seed steps of faith and I just wanna sit back and say, I applaud you, God applauds you. And this is how faith grows from a mustard seed to a mountain. Small, intentional steps of faith. And though you're not going to do it perfectly, and though you're going to try to do all these weird things just to make sure you land safe, I'm just glad you jumped. I think the second way that we can see that you have faith is very simply this. When you suffer or others suffer, does your faith still remain intact? I'm not asking, do your questions go away? I'm not asking... Um, are you are you frustrated with God? You're allowed to be frustrated. You're allowed to have questions. You are allowed to process. But here's my question: Are you abandoning God in suffering, your suffering, or the world's suffering? True faith allows you, even though it might be a one out of ten or a ten out of ten. Uh, it allows you to take small steps, and it allows you to not have your world crushed and abandon God. When all of the things in your life and in this world don't work out the way you feel like they should. And so this is where I want to come to most people and just say, I want, to, I want to encourage most of you and say this. True faith is a gift from God. And if you have a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, you are adopted, you are secure, you are firm, you are stable. That can never be taken away from you. And you may struggle and you may doubt and you may work through this stuff. You may be a 1 out of 10. You may be a 2 out of 10. But I just want to encourage you, this is where it starts And if you want to grow from a one to a two to a three to a four, it's time to sit to the second step and move to the third step, move to the fourth step. Maybe stop preparing God for all the stuff you're going to do and just take some leaps, right? Not blind leaps, but certain leaps because he is a good God. And if you hear anything fundamentally at its core, pistis, faith is about how you and God relate to each other. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? If you're at a 1 out of 10, you are a child of God. If you're a 10 out of 10, you're a child of God. But you're not better than the 1 out of 10 because who gave you the 10? God did. Let's pray together. Father, love you and so grateful for faith. Um, on one hand, such a, yeah, just an ethereal concept. On the other hand, it's just a very practical, real thing. God, you want us to relate to you out of trust confidence, assurance. And so God, on behalf of every Christian in this room, whether we have a one or a 10, thank you for giving us this gift. Thank you for showing us your mind, your heart, reality, where we came from, where we're going. And God, we just confess to you that we want our faith to grow. It is not as strong as it should be. And so God, would you invite us, would you put in front of us opportunities to maybe move up a step to maybe take a bigger leap, not into blindness, but into your certain arms because you are a good dad who loves us. And so God, thank you for faith. May you grow us. May you deepen us. May we trust you in ways we probably never even understood we could in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.